The personal is political. As a student at Oberlin College during the 1950s, I was taught to be proud of its early advocacy of equal opportunity for women and blacks. But by the late 1960s, Oberlin students, like their counterparts across America, were in rebellion. The few dozen black students on campus were protesting their paltry numbers. Women students were criticizing the status of women in the college and the country, and many students, who were upset over national policy in Vietnam, turned their ire on whatever college policies impinged on their rights as young adults. When Oberlin's Board of Trustees appointed me president of the college in 1970, the choice was clear. Either embrace the changes, blowing in the wind, or be blown away. Within a few years, Oberlin, like most other colleges, added many African Americans to its student body, faculty, and staff. Simultaneously, a feminist revolution transformed the college in a thousand subtle ways, and student pressure brought overdue reforms to social and educational policies. The simultaneous activities of the black, women's, and student movements made me realize that there was something deeper going on, something beyond differences in color, gender, and educational credentials underpinned the racism, sexism, and disenfranchisement of students that lay claim to our immediate attention. I sensed that the familiar isms were all manifestations of a more fundamental cause of discrimination, but I couldn't put my finger on it. It was not until I had left the presidency and had become a target of this kind of discrimination myself that I was able to identify it. Lacking the protection of title and status in the years after Oberlin, I experienced what it's like to be taken for a nobody. I found myself comparing the somebody-nobody divide with the white-black polarity of racism, the male-female oppression of sexism, and the student-teacher dichotomy in schools. There were differences, but there were similarities as well, the most important ones being, one, indignity and humiliation feel pretty much the same to a nobody, a black, a woman, or a student, and, two, no matter the excuse for abuse, it persists only in the presence of an underlying difference of rank-signifying power. No one would dare to insult Queen Elizabeth I or General Colin Powell. In the U.S., perhaps 20% of us have suffered directly from racism, and about 50% from sexism, but virtually all of us suffer from rank-based abuse, which I shall be calling rankism, in one context or another, at one time or another. Sooner or later, everyone gets taken for a nobody. Sooner or later, most of us treat someone else as a nobody. It always hurts to be dissed, no matter what your status. Yet if it weren't for the fact that most everyone has known the sting of rankism, would there ever have been empathy for victims of racism and sexism? At first I thought that rankism was just another ism, one more in the litany of isms with which we were growing weary, and I resisted the notion. Then it dawned on me that the familiar isms could be seen as subspecies of rankism. Racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, ageism, and others all depend for their existence on differences of social rank that in turn reflect underlying power differences, so they are forms of rankism. Overcoming rankism would therefore undermine racism, sexism, and other isms that have been fought under those names, but ultimately derive their force from power differences woven into the social fabric. Gradually, I realized that the gains would go much further. For example, the reason so many students, regardless of color, 
withhold their hearts and minds from learning can be traced to the fact that their top priority and constant concern is to shield themselves from the rankism that permeates education from kindergarten to graduate school. Rankism erodes the will to learn, distorts personal relationships, taxes economic productivity, and stokes ethnic hatred. It is the cause of dysfunctionality and sometimes even violence in families, schools, and the workplace. Like racism and sexism, rankism must be named and identified and then negotiated out of all our social institutions. How could a scourge like rankism have gone thus far unremarked? Well, of course it has not. We have been traumatized and battered by one or another of its manifestations for centuries, and many of these have long been recognized and acquired individual names. The situation is analogous to the era in medicine, when malignancies peculiar to different organs were seen as disparate diseases.